podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts today, Angie Fryer-Muth. And I'm Aaron Schneider. Today's guest is Mr. Tom Smith, Chief of Operations and Regulatory at the Army Corps of Engineers Headquarters. Thanks for joining us here today. Well, it's really great to be with you. I'm very appreciative of the dialogue and the chance to talk about the role of operations and regulatory in the Army Corps of Engineers, the people I work with, and uh, what we do that benefits the nation. Really, our, the purpose of today's episode is just to get to know you, Mr. Smith, and, and talk about your role in leadership philosophies and really just to learn more about what is operations and regulatory. But before we get started, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. So thanks, thanks for that question. I'll keep this relatively short. First, uh, I'm a New Yorker, a first-generation American. My, my dad was born in Scotland and immigrated to the United States uh, through Canada in the 1950s. Made a living as a truck mechanic, and my mom's parents are from Ireland, and so they met in New York City. And in the short story is, after high school, I went to uh, West Point, the United States Military Academy, and that launched me on a 30-year journey as an Army engineer officer. Uh, during which time I had a mix of combat engineering assignments, which deal with our field mission, the uniform side of what we do. Had the chance to learn and teach civil engineering at West Point. I am a professional engineer and did have a chance to teach it, did a chance to do some, some minor design work at different parts of my, as a junior officer for the Corps of Engineers. And then in the latter part of my career, I got to work directly in the Corps of Engineers, the command called the Army Corps of Engineers. I was a district uh, commander in Memphis for three years, and I spent about three years at the headquarters uh, as the G3, which gets involved with kind of integrating a lot of what we do for contingencies, but even some of the larger cross-cutting functional issues that come on come to the Corps of Engineers, I had a chance to deal with those. So then after retirement uh, from the military, and I hung up my uniform as a colonel, I joined the Senior Executive Service. I had the opportunity to work for four years in the Department of Homeland Security. I was doing strategy and planning, got involved with resilience, uh, some of the challenges that our nation faces in terms of being resilient from disaster, from terrorism, and some other enduring challenges that we often talk about even in the Corps of Engineers. Thank you, sir, and thanks for your service to the nation. To get uh, to know even more about you, can you tell us a little bit about your leadership philosophy? Yeah, so yeah, thanks for that. I, you know, I was thinking about you know, you could ask this question a lot when you're a senior executive, uh, what is your leadership philosophy? And so I, I hate to appear to be just uh, mimicking the chief, but he kind of frames this very well for us. He talks about people and he talks about winning. That's his current uh, kind of two ways he looks at priorities. And so so when I'm at my best, when, I'm, when I am leading uh, and using all the attributes of what I bring and doing it to the best of my ability, I'm focusing on people, listening, uh, listening to them, listening to those who work for me, those I work with, those I work around, and I'm trying to discern two things. What do they need for direction and guidance to, to deliver their part of the job? And so I have, you know, people who work directly for me, uh, and then I have a large functional responsibility in the Corps of Engineers of probably 15,000 employees who perform a role in the operations and regulatory community. And when I am out and about and visiting projects and talking with them, I'm trying to discern at a different level. What, what do they need in terms of policy? What is it that we're not aware of at the headquarters that we can do to make their job easier? So that's the people side. What direction and guidance do the people need to do the work that we ask them to do? And then also what's on their mind as people? 
we come together as a professional, as professional communities of practice to deliver our mission, but we each bring all the challenges of a complex society with us. And so sometimes they're just trying to listen to what their needs are. Uh, it isn't always go time all the time. And so like I say, when I'm on my best, I'm providing the right amount of guidance at the right time, at the right level, and I'm in tune with the people that I work with and that I work for and I work around to detect those things that they might need as just, uh, as just people who, you know, carry around all the challenges that we do as, uh, as Americans. But the second part of it is on mission focus and, uh, you know, winning as the chief calls it, and I think he's uh, paraphrasing the chief of staff of the Army. I really do believe, and I've always believed, that, you know, public service is a public trust. And we have a very, very special responsibility to the American people. At the end of the day, you know, we take care of each other as people, that first part, but what the expectations are, and there are significant expectations, is that we deliver our, in my case, this operations and regulatory mission for the nation, that the people who benefit from our navigation locks, from our hydropower, from protection behind a levy, from getting a permit uh, to, to continue with some modest or significant infrastructure project at home or in part of their community, that those things go consistent with the statutes and the laws that we have. And so I guess in that sense about winning, I'm, I'm thinking about delivering that, delivering those services and delivering that mission. And I think about that in a couple of ways as well. There are those things that we do because they're part of the very specific tasks that come to us. But then as a senior executive in the Army Corps of Engineers, I'm also trying to think about what is happening 5, 10, 15 years out, 20 years out, and how should we be adapting? What are the needs of the future, and how do we adapt to those? Because we don't just deliver a daily task. We are also setting the conditions for those who follow us. Yeah, you mentioned briefly operations and regulatory, but can you tell us a little bit more about these missions and why they're important to the nation? You know, this is the, probably the, the best part of the job I have is talking about what we do and why it's important to the, to the American people. So in its simplest description is the operations and regulatory programs are where the Army Corps of Engineer mission meets the American people. So I, I know you've talked to other senior leaders uh, in the Army Corps of Engineers and you'll talk to some after me. Um, and they might talk about planning or budgeting or some of those other, other important roles for a large, public infrastructure organization like the Army Corps of Engineers, but what we do in the operations and regulatory community is we, we directly contact a typical American citizen who may not understand anything about our budgeting or anything about, you know, how we do a long-term planning for coastal resilience. They're just benefiting from one of our 75 hydropower plants because they're one of the 7 million homes getting hydropower power for their home through one of our plants. Uh, we own about 200 inland navigation locks. And so we, we might have 1,400 vessels a day moving through those locks. So today, 1,400 vessels with cargo, anything from, ag from uh, aggregate to petroleum products to, to agriculture products are moving through our locks. So they're, they're seeing and touching us there. They live behind one of the 14,000 miles of levee that the Corps of Engineers has. And so it's a little bit of an identity we share, I share across the headquarters. So this isn't all exclusive to, to my work, but um, the operations team was often patrolling those levees and doing inspections with our engineering counterparts about what, it, what protection they can provide and is they up, are they up to it. 
I could go on and on here where, you know, even today there's probably three, 300 to 500 actions that our regulatory team will process that help some individual homeowner or some large business move forward uh, to balancing, uh, I think we'll probably talk more about this, balancing their need to attend to an important function in their community or at their home and the nation's statutory provisions which uh, want those balanced with uh, our aquatic natural resources. And so I think what we do in the oper operations and regulatory portfolio is we touch the American citizen with services that are important to them and we do it with, like I said, I've used the number before, maybe 15,000. I'm not, that may not be a perfect number and that's, they certainly don't all work for me directly, but they fit in this large portfolio of the workforce that is, you know, like I said, making one of those things uh, that I just mentioned uh, happen, you know, 125,000 tons of cargo moving through a port that we have responsibility for. That's how I see the program is we, we are aware that the Army Corps of Engineer mission meets the American people. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really impressive. And one interesting thing about the Corps of Engineers I've always found is that so much of America doesn't actually understand that the Corps of Engineers is there and the huge benefits that they get from the organization from, like you mentioned, the hydropower and all the goods that are moving up and down the inland waterways and coming into the nation's ports. I mean, that helps reduce the prices for them. Um, also, the recreation facilities that the Corps has. I think we have more annual visitors in the Park Service. And, you know, so there's all kinds of tremendous benefits that this agency has. And, and you're overseeing, you know, really one of the biggest divisions within the Corps of Engineers. So, you know, all these benefits, there's got to be some challenges out there. I was kind of curious, what are the biggest challenges that you see facing uh, your division? I'll touch briefly on the long-term challenges in a moment, but this is, there's something unique about you know, March of 2021, that's worth highlighting. That's when we're taping this uh, podcast. And that is, uh, we're a year into a pandemic. As I just described for a moment, and you added the regulatory program, for example, and we probably have, you know, on any given day, 800,000 visitors just on a single day. But over the past year, starting about one year ago, we were faced with the same challenge that hit the nation. You know, March of 2020, stop the spread, mitigate the spread of this of COVID throughout the nation, flatten the curve, or whatever the phrase was. Yet we looked at what we were doing for the nation, those same things we kind of ticked off a moment ago, hydropower protection behind a levee, uh, moving cargo along our 25,000 miles of waterway or getting cargo in and out of one of our thousands of thousand ports. And we realized that we couldn't quite stop the spread by stopping those activities because they were essential to just the vitality of the nation. The biggest challenge we've had is a current challenge because we're not quite out of it yet, which is protecting our workforce and delivering this essential mission. And so at about this time last year, while many, many parts of our society, uh, and I give them great credit for this, but they, they hunkered down in a sense and worked uh, remotely in other places, we actually asked our workforce to stay at the powerhouse, stay at the lock, stay on the levee, continue to process permits and those things, and that has been an enormous challenge. And so I give great credit to uh, really our frontline workforce. I don't want to overstate what I do from the headquarters there, but they figured it out. I mean, they split shifts, we bought personal protective equipment, we did any number of things for screening. Uh, we responded when things happened because it didn't go flawlessly. We talked to our partners. We were talking weekly 
multiple calls to our different stakeholders who were trying to understand what could we do, were we intending to shut down, and we worked through all of that. And here we are a year later, and I wouldn't say that we don't have the same type of daily concerns, but we're much more agile now. We're, we're already built into our processes as adapting, screening, mitigating, split shift, limited control and access, remote operations, except I would say in one area uh, where there's just a, because you mentioned it, Aaron, and I appreciate you doing that, is in recreation. At this time last year, we did decide for a brief moment in time to stop our recreation services. And as you indicate, 270 million visitors a year 2,700 project sites, we had to pull our workforce back because they also perform essential roles at the project, at the flood risk uh, project, at the hydropower project. And so we pulled back. And, you know, if you really think about it, it was at the same time that some of our public officials were saying, go to the outdoors. You can't go bowling right now. You can't go to the movie theater. You can't do that stuff. So why don't you just go to the outdoors? So we had a very stressful journey in our recreation program that we have walked through very, very diligently for about a year, and uh, we're excited for what typically in May we consider the opening of a recreation season. Once again, we, we expect to be able to deliver our services, but a lot of challenges. So I just wanted to walk through that unique challenge, and, and I'll transition a bit to what a kind of a more typical, had we not had the pandemic, what really is the challenge of the program that, that I have some oversight of? You know, we have, we have what we like to call a, uh, our water resource infrastructure is a national treasure. We have accumulated it over 200 years of our history, and now we own it. Sometimes I hear numbers about 260 or $270 billion worth of infrastructure is what we own. It provides great value to the American people, but preserving that value is the greatest challenge we have. You know, our chief likes to talk about the phrase world class, and he's got some things for us to people partnership readiness and modernization. It is a difficult daily and enduring challenge to meet the expectations of the American people every year and continue to operate this infrastructure. We're replacing some of it, we're upgrading some of it, but we own a lot of it and it has some challenges with it. Mr. Smith, sometimes we hear the core talk about the backlog of maintenance. Can you explain to our visitors what that is and how it's affecting the core infrastructure? So thanks, Angie. We do get asked about this idea of a backlog of maintenance uh, quite a bit. Our chief gets asked about it, our deputy commanding general when they testify. So quite simply, if, as I just mentioned, if you have 200, if you've been building infrastructure and you own it, 200 years worth of it, and it's 260 some odd billion dollars of uh, infrastructure, and I could give you all kinds of numbers about how much of what we own and where it's at, it takes a lot to maintain it. It takes a lot to operate it, which is just the execution of it to perform its intended function. And then like anything else you own from the day you buy a new house to the day you buy an old house to the day you buy a new car and old car, there's something you need to do for it to perform with the functional expectation you want. And so every year, through many, many different processes, we, we are defining what it is we need to do that year and then the following year and maybe even in the long term to continue to deliver those functions or the service that that, that infrastructure provides. It is a resource-constrained environment and there are a lot of priorities across the whole portfolio. And so we get great support from our Congress and the administration. We get sometimes on the order of $4 billion plus dollars a year, maybe more in some years for the operation and maintenance of our infrastructure. But quite frankly, we could 
we could use more money than that. Sometimes some will say that we get about half of what we need. I don't want to get too much into the precision of numbers because these are very sophisticated answers to how you ask the question. We have maintenance needs to keep this infrastructure running. We get great support. It often is short of the full amount we can use. And so what we commit to in those cases is through, through a very rigorous process, uh, making sure we put the dollars we receive to the parts of the projects, not just the project, but to the parts of the project that need it most. You know, we, we understand the value of our projects, we understand the condition of them, we understand the risk of failure, we know the cycles of maintenance that are required, and so with the money we get, we work to, to put it where it would do the most good based on the value of the project. Thank you. Talking about, thinking about, you know, maintenance and backlog of maintenance, does you know, does that focus on, on making sure we take care of the, the treasure we've been given and that, you know, $260, $70 billion infrastructure? You know, if we're focused just on the maintenance activities, you know, how are we able to focus on looking to the future? And you mentioned remote operations, and then we've also t um, heard a lot about commonality of components. Could you talk about how, how those um, pieces work as we look to the future? I mean, that's a great point. So I, I did describe that if, if you never did anything different, we would run our processes, our understanding of what we own, the condition of it, the risk of failure. We would invest it to replace it just as it is. But, but once again, I also mentioned that we need to meet the expectations of the American people and the challenge that our boss has set for us, our chief, is that we do world class. And so, so we have to continue to look at better ways to do things. If we have a backlog and we don't get every dollar we ask for to do kind of uh, every task that, that, that we would just line up in kind of a linear fashion, how do we do it better? And so there are a couple of, there are a couple of thoughts there, and you mentioned, uh, you mentioned two of them. Um, and I'll mention those and a couple others maybe. Um, first of all, we did build a lot of this infrastructure over a generation or a couple of generations. You know, we, built a lot of our inland infrastructure, inland navigation locks over periods of 50 or 60 years, same thing with our hydropower. We built them across regions, we built them with different contractors, we built them when, I, I, would, I don't want to undersell what our uh, predecessors did, but we built them locally first, regionally first. But then when you own it and you look at the way, the cost of, the cost of replacement parts now, the ways data can inform operations, the way you could be better off if you had standard processes in place to attend to maintenance. Um, you could staff differently, you could, you could, if you have expensive parts, I mean, uh, you could have fewer of them if you had standard or common parts and components. And so through our asset management program and through some uh, interaction with uh, our functional subject matter experts, Whenever we go to do maintenance now, major maintenance, and when, certainly when we do construction and rehabilitation, we are doing everything we can to have common components, uh, common systems and common processes so that we can save and gain the efficiencies that we now understand we can do in a much more enterprise or certainly regional look at our infrastructure. Uh, we're seeing it begin to pay off, but it takes time uh, because we are not gonna go to replace something that's working today just to get to commonality, and some of these things are very expensive, so we're moving into that. Remote operations is, is another idea that is uh, certainly not an epiphany to those uh, in, in the business or even to our nation who realize that there are things you can do with automation and with just some of the tools we now have. We may not need as many 
operations points. Uh, so in our hydropower, for example, we have we run many plants from common locations now, and we work for redundancy by setting up an alternate site that can run them. So we're not using the, the control house in every hydropower plant. We're, we're moving to do that with locks. And so once again, that, that will reduce costs, uh, potentially provide some, uh, sure we have redundancy. And then even in something like this past pandemic, we, we benefited from remote operations because we didn't have as many places to operate from, and we kind of focused differently. So you mentioned too, I'll just add that innovation is another part of what we do broadly, which is to continue to look at all that we own informed by the insight that comes from a, from a very aggressive field force that's trying to do things better, sharing that information, and then merging it with kind of some big strategic focus areas on data-informed operations. So we, we just have, we are just moving as the rest of industry is to be informed by the, what we understand about our equipment to go from, you know, fix after it fails to periodic maintenance and eventually to get to kind of a reliability-centered maintenance where you have used what the, what the system is telling you to inform what you do for maintenance. And those things can provide tremendous cost savings over time. Thanks for that. Earlier you mentioned that one of the chief focus areas was partnerships. So for the past couple of years, the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Civil Works, along with the Corps, has worked with a multi-federal agency team to highlight the value inland waterways and port spring to the nation and the world. Can you talk a little bit about why this partnership is important? So Andy, you're talking about a great success story that's happened over the last few years. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of what happened and then why it's so powerful. So you're right. The chief and our previous assistant secretary, uh, Mr. James, talked about partnerships is, you know, if you are a civil works organization, in other words, what, we, what you do supports others, you know, provides benefits to, to our nation, to the people who live in our communities, then you can only do it by understanding those needs better and by delivering it consistent with some of the expectations. Now, we don't water down our engineering standards because of a view of kind of a local community, but but these discussions about understanding it as a, about understanding these needs are a great value. So a few years ago, and I know you were involved with this, uh, so really just articulating it for others, the Department of Agriculture talking to uh, Mr. James, our Assistant Secretary, said, you know, your inland infrastructure is particularly valuable to the agricultural community of the nation. What you do, what your infrastructure provides is our ability to get the market, not just to move goods and services around their own nation, but to be competitive in the world. And they came and they wanted to kind of lay out a blueprint of that importance. And so the Department of Agriculture, informed by a lot of the data we could provide them and some of the insight we could talk about how we operate infrastructure, produced a very powerful report on the value of our inland infrastructure to the nation in support of the agriculture mission. It was such a powerful discussion that we realized that we would benefit from a similar discussion with other federal agency partners like the Department of Energy, like the Department of Commerce, like the Department of Transportation, and also with our regional stakeholders. And so that launched a series of listening sessions led from our Assistant Secretary's office with a cross-section of the nation's needs with our federal partners sitting beside us listening, listening, and listening, because it wasn't about us coming to say that 
here's what we think from Washington, D.C., but what is it that you see in us? What is it you need us to do? And that produced kind of a, you know, very well-developed kind of thought piece on how we could better serve the nation in this, in this space, a navigation mission which, you know, is loosely described as providing a safe, resilient, reliable, uh, waterborne commerce you know, for the, na for the nation, both inland on our, on our inland rivers and at our ports and harbors. Then, obviously, replicates itself in other functions. A lot of lessons learned. The value of listening cannot be underestimated. Yeah, I think that's been a, a great rundown, really, of the, the operation side of things. But I was thinking let's shift gears a little bit and, and focus a little bit on regulatory here. I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, we make hundreds of decisions a day. And, and sometimes in the news, maybe the regulatory side gets a, a bad rap because it seems like there's always some sort of permit thing in the news or issues. But really, you know, as a nationwide permitting organization, um, it, it, there's staff from, you know, really the north, south, east, west, everywhere. Um, we're protecting the environment and, and making sure that, you know, investment decisions are able to be implemented. Really, what does the core do to ensure consistency uh, across the nation um, as it pertains to the regulatory program? Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to talk first about the regulatory program in general because you're right. If there's on any given day when you pick up the newspaper or scan online about some controversial issues, there's this tension about development, you know, development in our nation with, you know, environmental impacts. And so, you know, the first thing I just wanted to, if you don't mind, I'll just describe our, our program a bit. You know, we've got about 1,200 regulatory professionals. Each year we probably touch about 80,000 different regulatory-related actions. Now, they're not all permits. Many of them are what we call nationwide or general permits, there are jurisdictional determinations. But what, what they're trying to do is inform science-based and balanced responses to for development and are protecting our aquatic natural resources. And really it's all driven by statute. And so often when you read some of the information that comes up in some of these controversial projects, there's a little bit of license taken as to what we actually have the authority and what our responsibilities are to the project and what sometimes others would like us to have. So first, we, we operate within very clear statutory guidelines, mostly around uh, the Section 404 program, which is a Clean Water Act, and others around Section 10, which is where we have oversight of navigable waters in the United States. And between those two areas, like I said, I've made several references, we deal, we deal with uh, some very small and community projects that need to, at least on a temporary basis, maybe some construction activity result in what we would call fill or dredge material into uh, waters of the uh, waters of the U.S. or some large-scale issues. We get a lot of discussion right now on pipelines and those multi-state efforts. But once again, operating within our authorities, uh, this this regulatory team we have does an extraordinary job in working towards a science-based and balanced solution to the expectation of the development and also our statutory responsibility for protecting aquatic uh, natural resources. No, I mean, I think that that's exactly right. I was, was just trying to, thinking about the consistency of application across the nation for these, but, you know, I think you really touched on it is that you're the, taking that science-based approach and, you know, we've got a large staff of professional uh, folks across the agency that, you know, are working to, you know, find that right balance between, you know, 
you know, keeping investments happening and protecting the environment. And, and that, that's one thing I think that, you know, people just see in the paper, there's a controversy, but they don't really see all the, the work that goes into these permits and really the large number of decisions that are being made on a daily basis. So it seems like, you know, your staff is doing a great job of, of striking that right balance and keeping things moving. Yeah, the, I think the part that I might have missed on was this consistency discussion, because that is a theme that we that we often hear about, is how do we achieve consistency, which is, you know, we, we deal with similar issues in similar ways across the nation. So. I would just tell our audience today that, um, you know, it begins with a statute and then it begins with implementation. Uh, then it continues. There's, there's uh, sometimes some policy boundaries that can be set on the statute. Uh, but then we work very, very hard on implementation. This, this workforce trains a lot. We have uh, webinars. We have, you know, kind of question and answer uh, forums for them to resolve technical issues. We do great amount of sharing of lessons uh, across regions. We have processes in place that that clarify the way you interpret very specific issues. Sometimes we call those regulatory guidance letters. And for the most part, we put a lot of this stuff on the public interfacing web. I think the people would be surprised, some people would be surprised. There are some sophisticated stakeholders who know what we put on our website, but we put a lot of information out on their website because of the tremendous amount of uh, public expectation for transparency. So we, we have a GIS-based website, for example, that every permit we are working on is, uh, is on this website. Uh, you, can, you can find it and you can get, to a certain extent, the status. I don't want to overstate the status because sometimes things are between, the reality is between two formal milestones. Uh, and then we have an extraordinary amount of the public guidance is posted in similar places. And so I think it would be very helpful to those who are trying to understand um, how we go about our trade is to take a look at some of that information and to just see how we work through it. Mr. Smith, we're nearing the end of our session together, um, but before we leave, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to talk about? Let me uh, finish or get close to finishing where we, where we began, which is like I said, in, in the simplest way, the operations and regulatory program is where the Army Corps of Engineers mission broad mission meets the American people. Many of the people who choose to listen to this podcast uh, won't know a lot about some of our internal governance processes, some of the ways we get things authorized by Congress, some of the constraints that we get put on us by how we spend money. They will just know whether or not we're delivering value. And so that really is the goal we have. And so uh, I think, you know, I saw in these podcasts, I've kind of listened to bits and pieces of a couple of them that you began to profile some different people, like a lock operator and stuff. And I just hope in the months ahead, you can take more of those examples from this field. You know, a regulatory project manager, a, one of our hydropower technicians or a park ranger, and just let them talk because they will tell you about how they are interacting with the American people. They may make mention about a resource concern or something, but Sometimes that's the headquarters stuff of what we do. And so I just, uh, my, my final thought is that I just want, if any of them choose to listen, any of our regulatory workforce or operations workforce or those stakeholders who benefit from our services, to know how much we appreciate what all of them do. And our commitment is uh, to get it right uh, every day. And if we don't, please tell us. I mean, uh, my boss, General Graham, says feedback is a gift, so tell us, and we'll work to get it right. 
Yeah, thank you, Mr. Smith, and, and really thank you to the, the operations and regulatory communities for all they do for the nation. But thanks for joining us today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. To our listeners, we want to hear from you, what topics are important to you and people you're interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together.